0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host, Robbie Martin. Today I'm going to be interviewing Tom Secker and Matthew Alford, authors of recently released book, National Security Cinema, from part of the synopsis of National Security Cinema. Using thousands of pages of documents acquired through the Freedom of Information Act, National Security Cinema exclusively reveals that the National Security State, led by the CIA and Pentagon, has worked on more than 800 Hollywood films and over a thousand network television shows. Dr. Matthew Alford is a teaching fellow at the University of Bath in England. His doctoral thesis applied Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky's propaganda model to the contemporary Hollywood film industry. His first book, Real Power, Hollywood Cinema and the American Supremacy, was published by Pluto Press in 2010. In 2014, Dr. Alford produced a documentary film of his research, the writer with no hands. Tom Secker is a private researcher who runs SpyCulture.com, the world's premier online archive about government involvement in the entertainment industry. He has used the Freedom of Information Act to obtain unique government documents since 2010, which has been reported on by Russia Today, Salon, Tector, The Mirror, The Express, and other outlets. He has authored and co-authored articles for Critical Sociology, in the American Journal of Economics and Sociology and host the popular Clandestine podcast. During this interview, I'll be reading a few excerpts from their book and I'm going to open the interview with one of these excerpts about Jurassic Park 3. The filmmakers of Jurassic Park 3, 2001 approached the Pentagon about borrowing some A-10 Thunderbolts for a scene where they would battle mid-air against a flock of pterosaurs. This request was refused. As Strub told them, They're tank killers. A flying dinosaur is no match for an A-10. It would only cause the audience to feel pity for the dinosaur. It is probable that this decision was made due to the audience responses to the ending of the DoD-sponsored Godzilla, where the monster is shot dead with missiles by Marine Corps jets. In discussions with the producers of Jurassic Park 3, Strub managed to leverage two other major changes to the script. He suggested a, quote, nice military rescue, end quote, at the end of the film. And the production was loaned soldiers and vehicles from the Marine Corps for this sequence. Strub also said to the producers, But tell me this. You've got this major running around the world with the authority that the president can only dream about. So, if you don't care, would you change his character to make him like the president's science advisor or something like that? Just get him out of uniform. The filmmakers obliged. So, thank you so much for joining me today, Matthew and Tom.
1: A pleasure.
0: Thank you, Robbie. Yeah, I've been really enjoying your book. I just finished it last night and I just wanted to say it is an extremely impressive piece of work. And I really value that you guys have put something like this together that, you know, there is a, there are a few moments in your book where you say, you know, that you actually say we're speculating here, which I also appreciate. But most, I mean, the overwhelming majority of it is extremely well sourced, factually backed up by by documents, by quotes from filmmakers, uh, from the DOD, from different government agencies. And I learned a lot while reading it. I consider myself a film buff. You know, a lot of this hidden hand of the government, I've felt it when watching movies, but I didn't really know exactly why I was feeling it. And this book really does provide a roadmap for why <laughs> I was feeling some of those things. And I've basically provided an extremely valuable public service uh, by doing this book. So hats off to you guys.
1: What a really nice thing to say, uh, or a nice set of things to say. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Robbie. I appreciate it.
0: I'm going to jump straight to Appendix C to start out our discussion about what's actually in your book, because at first glance, when, you know, if you you see this, it almost doesn't seem, you, you know, you almost don't believe it. I mean, and I'm, this is coming from me personally. I was, I was looking at this list and I was like, is that really, you know, my first thought was, are these all really true (laughs) CIA supported influence films, FBI supported films? Um, And, you know, I mean, obviously on some level, I was like, well, they're going to back this up in the book. And you guys did beautifully, but I just thought it was interesting how this appendix C you know, it actually shows how far back this goes. You actually include OSS in here as well, which I don't think most people realize how far this back this relationship actually goes. So, but yeah, the amount of films and the amount of modern films, especially, like after the 2000s is quite breathtaking. So when most people, you know, are introduced to this concept that the CIA and, and the DOD or the US government has influence over those these films. I think that most people's perception of it is is more cartoonish perhaps that that they think maybe that uh, the the DOD is forcing Hollywood filmmakers to censor themselves and that the Hollywood filmmakers are are staying quiet when they're censored, but it's actually a much more subtle and in my opinion psychologically interesting relationship that actually takes place. It doesn't appear that the DOD or the CIA actually force anything. They're actually compelling the filmmakers, the producers, the the writers themselves into changing the content of the film to match their agenda. Describe how does this actually happen so often? What's the incentive? Is it simply access to military equipment and personnel for free or at a low cost, or is it something more than
2: that? Are you asking about the, the psychology of that relationship or simply the process of how it happens? Well, I guess both. Um, well, the filmmakers, I guess, fundamentally, they want something that the audience hasn't seen before. Uh, that's always kind of what you want in Hollywood is enough that they recognize and they'll you know be able to get into it, but also some surprises and some extra cherries on top that make them come out thinking that was a special movie. I'll go see the next one. Um, So they're going to the military, essentially, for things like that, I guess. Access to unique locations, access to people who know things that most people in Hollywood don't know, uh, access to vehicles, you know, the latest fighter jets, latest, I don't know, whatever, boats, all the rest of it. So that's what's in it for them. What's in it for the military, of course, is a chance to promote themselves. And they're relatively open about the fact that they are trying to, I guess, portray themselves well so that they can uh, maintain morale within the troops, maintain recruitment numbers, things like that. But what they never acknowledge in the public documents, um, at least until we got all of these, is that they make serious, politically motivated changes and even remove things from scripts that they don't like and that the filmmakers... The most part, it seems, essentially go along with this. So, psychologically, I guess, for the filmmakers, it's a choice between, I suppose, for them, I mean, they, they don't exist in a structure that allows for a huge amount of creative freedom anyway, or at least the technology allows for a huge amount of creative freedom and the budgets, I guess. But in terms of political content or just generally the sort of content of the movies, they are existing in this studio system where they're usually brought in and given a 12-point list of what the movie is expected to accomplish. So they're making something within quite a rigid structure of expectations. So when they go to the military, the military say, well, you've got to change half a dozen scenes in this movie. I guess they're used to just sort of going along with it, so they go along with that too. Um, it doesn't seem that often that they request significant changes and the filmmakers just tell them to sod off and go and do their own thing anyway. Um,
1: One of the few cases of that is 13 Days, um, the Kevin Costner movie, um, which uh, recreated the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, there was... There does appear to have been quite a significant falling out between the filmmakers there um, and the Pentagon uh, because they were recreating the 13 days and demonstrating how the military at the time, joint chiefs in particular, had been pushing for an aggressive um, American policy towards Cuba, which, you know, by all, by, according to all analysts, would have resulted in nuclear war. Um, Now the uh, Pentagon did not want to be associated with that. Um, I think one of the issues was the, um, uh, whether there had been a flight over Cuba, which had been a provocative flight. Um, and I think the filmmakers actually sent um, a copy of um, JFK, uh, a memorandum from JFK, or a letter from JFK to the um, to the family of the uh, 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 servicemen involved, you know, saying that this had happened and that we're sorry that this happened. Um, but the Pentagon were unmoved by this uh, for the uh, for the production of the uh, of the piece and so they they ended up withdrawing support after initially offering it um in david rob's book um which is called operation hollywood which is in some ways a kind of forerunner to what we've done um rob puts uh, the producers of 13 days in his uh, oscar-winning uh hero character <laughs> heroic heroes and villains he has in the some of the heroes are the producers uh, of 13 days and Kevin Costner for holding out against the military. But yeah, Tom's completely right. There's no, uh, it's very unusual for that to happen um, for, for uh, filmmakers to actually change their mind. And bear in mind, you know, a lot of the time the military are just asking for script changes. They're not trying to change things at the last minute um, on set um, that would be much more costly and awkward. You know, 99% Ninety nine percent of the time, that they're just um, switching around a few words on on a script, um, and that's fairly easy to accommodate. Uh, and as Tom says, you know, filmmakers are used to making these kind of compromises and uh, these kind of shifts. And you know, what, what do they lose? They don't lose a great deal. Um, it's it's just uh, uh, it's only really the audience who loses
0: out. Yeah, you guys do a a great job in the book of you know, just explaining the harsh realities of the Hollywood landscape even before it gets to this point, that getting a film made in the Hollywood system is already extremely restrictive. Finding the funding for a subversive anti-war, anti-government movie is virtually impossible in the first place. So if you do get funding and somehow get it into a major Hollywood system, you have to go through another gauntlet of, you know, of censorship. But if you've already gone through that process and gotten your your film into the Hollywood system, chances are you're probably willing to compromise on a few things that might be perceived as minor things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And think how cool it would be if you were making a movie um, and someone gives you access to an aircraft carrier and says, look, you can have slow motion shots of Black Hawk helicopters taking off from this massive aircraft carrier. You can have an overhead shot of the aircraft carrier and you can have men running around in their hundreds with flares, um, as in as in fire flares, not as in uh, dressed in flares. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it creates a great spectacle. I mean, you've already got a powerful, uh, emotive, dramatic scene there. So it's easy to see why films like Transformers um, and uh uh, filmmakers like Michael Bay uh, and Peter Berg are very much favoured because they want that kind of uh, kinetic experience on uh, on screen, and that suits everybody except the audience, <laughs> which is almost going to be my refrain I think on the interviews.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one one of the earlier examples that you have in your book is the film Green Parades with John Wayne and. It seems like a lot of the negotiations that took place in that film and the script changes were a lot of the same types of negotiations that take place today with in terms of portrayal of the military, um, and in and in similar cases to a lot of the modern movies, the book actually had a lot of stuff in it that was you know made certain aspects of the military look really bad, but when it was changed you know converted to a script. Uh, it was it was watered down to begin with, but then it was even watered down more by the Pentagon. And in the end, um, there was actually a DOD credit uh, apparently in the in on the film, and the producer wrote to the Pentagon and said, "We all agree with the DOD suggestion that such a credit could conceivably categorize the picture as a U.S. propaganda film rather than an exciting piece of motion picture entertainment." And, and and that's the producer talking to the DOD it seems like the producers themselves don't want to be seen as military propaganda and they agree, and the DOD is sort of trying to almost almost like flatter them and it, it, that that's what appears to me and it's not out of any coercion but out of pride in their craft of making an entertainment product it, that seems to be the primary reason they, can, they they agreed on that on not having the DOD credit i mean it, it's just an interesting example to me of how these people want to be seen as creating art or entertainment. Um, and that's really the, that they don't, and it's not because they don't want to be propagandists is because they don't want to be seen as not filmmakers or artists.
1: They know that all of this is done consciously. They do know that they are taking a, a hatchet to these, um, to, to, certain scripts and they've known it at least since 1968, because that's where the Green Moraes was, was, was done. Um, yeah, I mean, the it's it's Greenpeace is such a classic, really, as well. I mean, because the level of intentional, uh, of intentionality, I mean, John Wayne literally writing to the president of the United States saying, I want to make a film that will make the war in Vietnam look good. You know, <laughs> that's how the project began. I mean, you, you can't get much more extreme as a, you know, a private conversation between uh, the leading man in Hollywood and the leader of the United States saying, Vietnam's not looking very good we are going to make it look really good in a film. Can we have loads of support, please? Yes, uh, in response. And can we make sure that that support is done secretly now? Yes. (laughs) Now, that's just, that is the blueprint for what they've done ever since. I mean, really, they were doing it prior as
0: well. It seems like there's all different government agencies that have different types of influence on filmmakers and and Hollywood films. Um, You guys go through the CIA... Uh, the State Department, the Office of Information, the the Pentagon, and even the White House um, in certain instances, give me an overview on how these different agencies have worked on Hollywood production. When I say have worked on them, I mean have in- influenced them. Um, and Like, how is the CIA's interaction with some of these filmmakers different than the Pentagon? And then also explain the difference between active military or government participation and sort of retired government consultants, because there seems to be an awful lot of ex-CIA you know, agents helping films. Um, and as a lot of people will commonly say, you, you never leave the agency, so to speak, in the CIA. So go into that a little bit. Okay. So I suppose the main
2: difference between the CIA and the DoD is that the CIA doesn't have that much in the way of cinematic assets. It can't you know you although the CIA has properties all over the world obviously you can't go and film at them so therefore what they have to offer in terms of like added production value is uh, unusual ideas i guess would be one way of looking at it basically stories that you haven't heard before because the CIA is party to all sorts of secrets its own secrets other people's secrets so they can parlay some of that into a, a cinematic asset, a storytelling asset. And so their influence, as best we can tell, is most prominent in the script writing phase, whether that's in pre production or, you know, once the script has already been written and then they can go in and say, well, how about this in that scene or how about a storyline more like this? Um, Chase Brandon was renowned for spending lots of time pitching ideas to script writers and Har- harassing producers and saying, why don't you you know, put this in your movie? Um, so that would be the difference, is that the CIA, because they lack the cinematic assets of the DOD, they've had to be, at least since 96, when they founded the Entertainment Liaison Office, they've had to be a bit more proactive. They've had to sort of get out there and try and push ideas and uh, get involved early on in projects, because otherwise you know, they don't have all the aircraft carriers and so on, that would draw people in and actually give them some kind of influence in Hollywood. So that's one difference. Um, I guess in terms of like, one thing we have found though, is that the DOD seems to be trying to ape that to some extent. They seem to have noticed the CIA's kind of rise in Hollywood over the last uh, 20 years and said, maybe we can learn a thing or two from that, because they keep holding meetings with very high-level executives at the major studios, and sometimes the Entertainment Liaison Office reports explicitly say this is so we can get involved earlier on in productions and so that our concerns and our messages can be incorporated into the script at the earliest stage. So (laughs) while there is that distinction, it seems that the DOD are kind of starting to play catch-up on that front, As it applies to ex-CIA agents, we aren't 100% sure, but the documents from the uh, Office of the Inspector General at the CIA who conducted an examination of their relationship with Hollywood did say that former employees are supposed to undergo some kind of briefing, some kind of uh, advisory interview and things like that, whereby certainly if they write anything, if they're writing a script – that has to be vetted um if they're just giving informal advice it seems they are also supposed to liaise with the cia's office of public affairs and say we're going to be talking about this and they say make sure you don't mention that exactly how much that actually happens that's the bit we're not sure about it's supposed to and we do know of several concrete examples of former cia employees who are writing in one case comic books um
0: batman comics seriously uh and they I those storylines have, wait, wait, have just, to be vetted by the CIA. Let me stop you there for a second. Do you, which Batman comic? <laughs> uh, this guy is called, what was his name, Tom King?
2: I'm pretty sure his name was. Okay, uh, I'll have his, to look him up. Um, but his storylines sometimes involve the CIA, and they say we have to vet them to ensure there's nothing in there that y- you're not allowed to say. And that seems to be the CIA's primary interest here. It's not so much injecting things into propaganda in that sense. It's making sure that certain things kind of remain unsayable.
0: Um, Interesting. So
2: there again, that would be... I'm I'm just saying, going back to your initial point about how a lot of people's idea of this is quite cartoonish, that's, I think, quite an important distinction, that usually they're working with semi-finished scripts and they're maybe making a few suggestions, and in particular, taking a few things out. It's not like the c i a is spending lots of time commissioning the scripts or anything like that
0: and you go through different examples in your book unless the movie itself is about the c i a then it seems like there's actually more you know c i a involvement in those in those cases charlie wilson's war um and that movie in particular. Was interesting to me because in your book there it seems like there were several, several lines, and a lot of the time it it comes down to just a few lines. Um, in In the movie, sort of making more light of the fact that the Mujahideen was funded by the United States, um, and it seems like some of those lines were removed. And then also they it's, it seems like that movie attempted to make it seem like it's just this you know this congressman who just got together a few you know ragtag CIA guys to um you know to launch this secret war without mentioning the the bigger picture and the bigger context of it of how CIA supported it actually was um i think you even mentioned that the MI5 and different government agencies that helped that were also not mentioned and it seems like om- omitting things in a, a, like a film like charlie wilson's war is very powerful way of of sort of Tying the hands of what could have been um, a potentially very subversive story, um, and I mean, were were you guys saying in the book uh, in your book that even the original story that Charlie Wilson's War was based on was what had even propaganda going through it, or was it the transition from book to screenplay where most of those the watered watered down nature of it took place?
2: Well, I'd say having read the original book, George Crile's book. He does – his version is certainly a lot more subtle and complex and very much does point to this idea of the creation of al-Qaeda, the establishment of al-Qaeda at the end of the the Soviet-Afghan war being a consequence of this CIA policy. And so, you know, whatever then comes after that that we blame al-Qaeda for is in some way on the CIA's shoulders. He doesn't shy away from that notion in the book. Whereas they absolutely do in the film. And another point, just simple things, is like the book explicitly refers to Charlie Wilson, the congressman, as a CIA asset and to Gust as his handler. Huh. That doesn't make it into the film. It's just some sort of convenient buddy comedy where they just, you know, met up and they kinda of hit it off and so that's what happened. The notion that this was actually a intelligence relationship in the classic sense is missing from this spy movie. So, yeah, there's a lot that's omitted from that final script. Um, And, yeah, we don't have the documentation on exactly what the CIA and Chase Brandon did to that movie. But when you read the the earliest script that's available, another one from several months later, and you compare both of those to the finished film, you can see this consistent process of watering things down and eliminating... Even just simple things like references to Al-Qaeda and uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, this sociopathic narco-terrorist who the CIA was supporting very heavily at that time, and has now reformed and is a politician in the new Afghan parliament. Um, (laughs) In any case, things like that were just removed because they don't want people looking that stuff up. They don't want people thinking down those lines. Um, You can tell the story, but you can't put it in the right context and deal with the consequences of it.
0: Yeah. And and I I remembered, I mean, I haven't seen the whole movie, but I remember while watching it, um, you know, without knowing a lot of that stuff, i felt very sanitized to me and I couldn't quite put my finger on why, but one of the words that constantly comes up in your book, especially in regard to the Pentagon uh, working with, with Hollywood filmmakers is they prefer that, at every, every opportunity to civilianize um, military personnel. And in that example you just mentioned, it almost seems like the CIA would very much prefer that CIA assets aren't even seen as quote-unquote CIA assets. They're just seen as civilians, um, you know, who, who who go out and drink and party. Um, so in that it almost seems like they're trying to civilianize uh, the CIA. And Argo, I guess, would be, Sort of another example of that, but there, but there, are, it seems to be quite a trend in the 2000s of making movies that portray the CIA as just as civilians and as regular people. Most, a lot of them, comedies. Um, so, I don't know if you guys have any comment on that. I was kind of just ranting there. Um, you guys, have anything Oi. to say about that? <laughs>
2: You're certainly not wrong, that the CIA does seem to love comedies. I mean, uh, Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, Bad Company. Uh, you could argue Charlie Wilson's War is a comedy. In fact, I think it's primarily a comedy rather than a spy film or a war film or a politics film. Um, so, yeah, I guess the CIA have a chronic problem in that they were a little bit late to the party when it came to actually establishing a kind of positive PR relationship with Hollywood. And by that time, quite a lot of filmmakers had got in there and portrayed the CIA kind of as parts of them really are, parts of the CIA really are as quite a kind of dark murderous force. So in responding to that, they can either try and make light of it and try and make themselves look like, uh, I guess, lovable rogues and clowns to a certain extent. Um, or at least the people that they work with can look like that anyway. Or they can try and, in some way, co-opt that and turn it to their favour. Because if you look at something like Homeland, the CIA aren't a friendly, cuddly agency, but the message in that and in quite a lot of other CIA-sponsored products is that we live in a dark, complex, dangerous world that requires rational people who are willing to do what is necessary so aren't you aren't you glad that we've got a cia because you can't there's never been like a cia equivalent of battleship let's say <laughs> you know just a completely you know pro cia great how you know um there's never been anything quite like that so the cia do have a somewhat different relationship with hollywood to the dod is all i'm getting at there
1: that is a nice distinction actually um and one of the uh really good cases of that is the 2001 film spy game with uh, Robert Redford. Um, And where, you know, that could be construed as a film that is opposing uh, the American government and Central Intelligence Agency. But I think, actually, because partly, I suspect because there was some CIA influence on, on it, that was a film which although presented this world of spies as this kind of backstabbing, dramatic place, nevertheless presented the world as being extremely dark and dangerous. And therefore, this is the only solution to that kind of um, reality of living. Um, and so when you do have, you know, you want to um, to get your guy from Russia to, to defect, um, but actually sometimes you have to sacrifice him because actually he's a double agent and you know all this so it's always kind of creating this world of shadows, not just a world of shadows but a world of, of um, a world of gray. And you know that's in a way that is a fair uh, uh, characterization of, uh, of the clandestine world. but again, that you know there are compromises that come with that and the compromises appear to be very consistent. Uh, the sanitization of film scripts. And, you know, we don't really need to be propagandised like that. That's not... You know, if, if the uh, clandestine services want to operate in a world of grey and make those kind of moral choices, then that's up to them. They shouldn't really be allowing that to bleed into our popular culture and to affect the way that, uh, that ordinary people, cinema goers, children and so on, view the world.
0: You know, that should be up to artists, you know. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you mention this gray, um, way that the CIA is portrayed. I mean, it almost seems like, in some ways, it's sort of the norification of the national security state. Um, it's, it's bizarre, um, but it also makes a lot of sense. That's the name of our, you know,
1: that's the name of our, our book, National Security Cinema. So, you, you know, I think we're identifying that, uh, that that kind of meshing of worlds, I guess. Um, but I think, I think one of the things we should also point out, just to really pull back a bit here, one of the main motivations for writing this book was that we found evidence that thousands of products were affected. And yeah. that's one of the big distinctions between the CIA and the Department of Defense. The Department of Defense has affected thousands of products. Well over a thousand products, however you look at it, um, including about nine hundred TV shows over the past ten or fifteen years, um, a huge rise, a huge spike in the um, uh, in the rate of interference in uh, in television.
0: Well, that's what I was so, gonna I was gonna ask you about that next because in your book it says that in you have been able to compile over one thousand one hundred thirty three TV titles that the Pentagon has worked on 9, 977 of them between 2004 and 2016. I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, without even knowing these statistics, it seems like there's been a huge spike in popular TV and, and Hollywood in terms of its portrayal of the military in a positive way. Um, you know, compared to the past, it seems like an, a very alarming number, but I mean, In general, you know, does this also match up with the amount of involvement they've had with Hollywood? Um, You know, or is it just TV? Because it seems like it is, I mean, it feels like it is full spectrum, mainstream popular culture that we're on a, you know, we're getting more and more positive portrayals of the military in the 2000s than I can remember, you know, during my youth or even during the 90s um, when I was in high school.
1: I, I, I think we need to be a bit careful with that. Because it, it, we always believe that we're in a period of time which is, you know, the crisis time or that things are getting worse or, you know, that there's some kind of point that's coming. Um, and we just don't... I just don't think that the research is out there to say whether popular culture at the moment is more militarised or less militarised. You know, we're pointing to a simple fact, which is that there are about over a thousand products that have been affected in the past 10 or 15 years and that is a big spike in the number of products that have been um, advised upon um, by the military and other uh, elements of the government but we don't really know the extent to which they have actually affected those products and that is again a reason for transparency in government because You know, the documentation for how they, you know, for exactly what they did on American Idol or Army Wives or whatever just isn't there. We know that there's more involvement, but we don't know exactly what it comprises. Uh, They seem to be very careful over the past 15 years uh, in particular to not reveal the actual scripts that they've gone through. Um, You know, in the olden days, in the 20th century, there were at least some scripts knocking around, which which were annotated by the military, uh, and that archive of material has it, it no longer uh, is accessible to the public, and that kind of that style of um, of correspondence of letters and uh, uh, and script annotation does not no longer is uh, is done by the military, uh, in the same way the CIA doesn't really seem to write anything down uh, in these cases, except for some memos that have leaked through court cases and things like that. So, again, it, it, I'm very much calling for transparency and for further research on this, really. Uh, I, I mean, I suspect you're right, Robbie, that there probably is more militarisation in Uh, in our culture but it's quite a leap to say that particularly when you think back to you know what were the 1940s like we're having a war the world war at the time the 1950s massive propaganda campaign against communism 1960s and 70s vietnam you know killing three million people across the other side you know that's huge so and then 1980s ronald reagan you know uh, the uh, re-establishment of militarized mindset you know coming for him uh, Reagan himself coming from Hollywood. So, you know, there's always been times where this relationship and uh, the militarization of culture has been important. I, I just don't know if, it, if it's more important now or not, but I would just say that it's always been something that's been quite carefully hidden and underplayed uh, by all of the relevant parties, whether that's the uh, people in the entertainment industry Uh, all the people in those government organisations, or indeed by the academics themselves uh, and the uh, reporters and journalists. And that's what we're shining a light on here. Um, It's not to make any great claims about, you know, oh, the film industry is the worst thing in the entire world, or that, you know, this is the most propagandized anyone's ever been, or all films are changing, or, or, you know, Pop Idol is, you know, tool of the military. None (laughs) of that. You know, we're not saying that. We've, We've got enough here to, to warrant a, a, a very sig- significant and serious analysis of, uh, of what the government has been doing in all of its multiple um, uh, facets. and um, That work does need to be done. Um, as Tom was saying about the CIA um, uh, Office of Inspector General, you know, we're going to be looking out for that next report that's coming because they don't know. Even their own uh, internal people don't really know What's happened with the uh, with uh, when they've been advising on entertainment productions the accountability over this whole issue has been poor I would say I would characterize it as poor and that needs to change
2: well I, I'd say poor and in some cases non-existent so <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah yeah it, it, it is a real poor problem um, I mean just another way of answering your question, Robbie, is that, yes, it does seem sometime around 2004, uh, the Pentagon got involved in a lot more TV series. There's two big reasons for that that I can think of. One is that there was a lot more TV. The arrival of, of digital TV services and early versions of on-demand you know, streaming services and so on and so forth just meant that there was an awful lot more TV being made, and therefore there was more requests to the Pentagon. Another thing is that I think it was in 2005 they actually relaxed their rules that said that they couldn't work on reality TV shows. For the first few years of reality TV, the Pentagon basically just turned their noses up at it. But then, for some reason, a decision was made. This is actually recorded in one of the liaison office reports that, yes, we can now start accepting requests from reality TV. And since there's so much reality TV out there, that therefore meant that they were getting involved in more productions. So I don't know if that's so much a result of Pentagon aggression in the entertainment industry, so much as just the way that the industry has developed at that particular time and up to the, you know, time we're talking now. So I'd I'd see it more that way, I guess, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. I mean it it's and it's also as you said that the amount of accountability is um shockingly absent. So, you know, the more we move into the digital era, perhaps it's easier to, to find you know, some record of these things.
1: Well, you'd have thought so, but actually that's part of the whole disgrace of it. You'd have thought it, it wouldn't be difficult to, to make this material available through the Freedom of Information Act. You know, we have got a, you know, a, lot of, uh, a lot of material, but surely the actual script should be there. Surely the actual correspondence between the producers and the military should be there that why is this being withheld why can't we see more of that certainly in the case of um zero dark 30 they found about 100 pages worth of memos when there was serious media attention because you know the the, the media did actually genuinely see um uh, some uh, they got a taste for blood there and because they knew that there was uh, some dodginess surrounding the uh, the specific relationships because it looked like the um, uh, Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bowler had, uh, had acquired perhaps uh, classified information and so the media went into a frenzy over this one but not so on anything else you know, so if, if they've got all that material on that you know, there should be material on many of these other productions as well even if it doesn't say that much at least we'd know
0: Iron Man and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Air Force Captain Chris Hodge, the Defense Department's Project Officer for the production, commented that the Air Force is going to come off looking like rock stars. In exchange for this very positive portrayal, they helped with almost every aspect of the film, from script research and technical advice to on-location filming, providing aircraft and airmen as extras. An early draft of Iron Man from 2004 shows that it was originally far more opposed to wars and the weapons industry than the version that made it into cinemas. In the earlier version, Stark's father, Howard, is still alive, and it is he who runs a massive weapons manufacturing business, which Tony opposes while working on developing advanced technologies that are peaceful. When others suggest that Tony adapt his inventions into weapons, he rejects this, repeatedly saying No military contracts. When Tony discovers that Howard, along with fellow military industrialist Justin Hammer, have been stealing his designs, weaponizing them, and then selling them under the table to North Korea and other rogue states, he fights back. Tony creates the Iron Man suit as a means of countering and struggling against the military-industrial complex, rather than as a supplement to it as in the finished film. In one scene... Tony Stark confronts Justin Hammer, calling him a technology-laden sociopath. Stark believes that the plot is just about making money, but Hammer corrects him, saying, Your father will settle for nothing less than the restoration of the order to the world. The original script not only criticized the moral corruption of the arms industry, but characterized it as seeking to rule the world. Several years later, the producers of Iron Man did not have a finished screenplay when they actually started shooting the movie, which meant that director John Favreau and star Robert Downey Jr. had to improvise a lot of the dialogue while they were filming. This is because almost all of the 2000 script had been jettisoned or radically altered. Howard Stark and Justin Hammer were watered down from military industrial megalomaniacs into the Obadiah Stain character who is merely selling weapons to terrorists to increase profits. Tony Stark briefly flirts with pacifism instead of being committed to it throughout. And he creates the Iron Man suit to take revenge on his captors, not on the arms industry. As I was reading your book, I got the sense that in a lot of instances, what you were showing, what's publicly available, what we can get access to perhaps could be the tip of the iceberg for some of these films. Um, so a lot of it still seems very opaque. So, I mean, I, I encourage anyone out there who wants to do, you know, do follow-up research, continue digging in this area to, to do it, because it seems like there is a lot more information to uncover, even if we, you know, even if it's being deliberately hidden. So um, Well, I will yeah.
2: say this, this, Robbie, that we do know, um, as part of the various correspondence that we got as a result of these FOIA requests, that there are approximately 90 boxes of oh, yeah. communications, draft scripts, production agreements, script notes, whatever the hell it is that's in all of these folders. That's now, um, I think, been moved to the like uh, Marine Corps History Archive Center. And it's just sat there in an archive somewhere. And we've been able to get like a handful of these folders. And in a couple of cases, it's been relatively mundane in the cases where there have been full script notes and communications between them, it's always involved this kind of deeply politicised changes and even outright censorship of subversive or otherwise difficult elements of the script. So we can only assume that what we have here is going to be duplicated in other films that we don't yet have any documentation on. How many Of of those hundreds of films... We, I, I don't want to estimate, to be honest. It could be 90% of them. It could be 30% of them. But again, this is the point. The lack of accountability, the lack of just publishing this information or releasing it freely in response to legitimate FOIA requests means that in uh, so many cases we can't say. We took our best shot at it. We put together the best material that, that we could dig up in terms of demonstrating how politicized these script changes can be and we came up with i don't know a few dozen examples there's a lot in that book but i imagine there are probably dozens if not hundreds more
1: was, you know the 90 boxes uh, uh, tom w- uh, just remind me was that uh just marines
2: yeah that's uh, just, just the marine corps liaison office that's I the stuff it that uh... just marines
1: wasn't
2: <laughs> <it>? <laughs> yeah 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 interesting so- we don't know yeah, how so much exists in <laughs> the Air Force, the Navy, the Army. We don't know how much they've got lying around.
1: Yeah.
0: That's absolutely fascinating.
1: Uh, Tom, you, you, were, you were saying to me the other day, weren't well, you, that uh, you thought maybe uh, how, much, how much money did you think it would, it would take but to request all, all of those boxes? About $10,000, was
2: it? Well, that was just a figure off the top of my head. It could be double that. It could be, yeah, it'd be an enormous sum of money unless we found some way to crowdfund that. I don't think we're
1: getting it.
2: <laughs> Someone
1: should go there. Someone should do that.
2: Yeah, yeah. If, if anyone can get in touch, I'll tell you exactly where it's at. And if you can get in there and take a good look and maybe even copy some documents, that'd be wonderful.
0: Yes. Yes. For anybody listening, um, take this seriously because these, these documents can still be accessed by the public. They just cost a lot of money and, uh, doing a FOIA is, you know, it's, it's not super hard, but you have to learn how to do it. And I, I haven't done one yet, but, um, yeah, you, you have to shell out a lot of dough to do it. So, um, investigative journalism costs money, people, um, regardless of what you're led to believe. Um,
1: some of the uh, some of the requests are are free, and some some of them um, end up costing money for reasons that I never quite understand. Tom has been called. What were you, Tom? A vexatious
2: requester? Yeah, the the Foreign Office called me a vexatious requester, which basically <laughs> meant they were sick of having to answer my FOIA requests, um, and that they messed me around so much that I got a little bit hostile and told them, you know. This is kind of a farce of democratic accountability when it takes six months and then they turn up and say, oh, no, we can't actually release any of this stuff to you. And then when you appeal it to the information commissioner, they say, actually, they should have released all of this. And then they mess you around for another three months before they actually give it to you. And because I got a bit grumpy in my communications with them, it's like they just stamped me, you know, vexatious requester and are now trying to avoid my FOIA requests. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's It can be, be a vexation. fun process vexation, as well <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to shift shift gears here a little bit and talk about some specific filmmakers um and contrast them because on one hand you 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 give some very high praises to two filmmakers in the Hollywood system who against all odds seem to be able to make very subversive films um one of them is Paul Verhoeven, um, who I think you give higher praises to than than Oliver Stone, who is another filmmaker you mentioned. Um, there, I think there there's some issues with Oliver Stone's sort of hero worship of JFK um, that does sort of affect the film JFK and Nixon, which I was pretty aware of before I I read your book. But Paul Verhoeven to me is is a very unique because he. You know he didn't do historical movies like Oliver Stone was doing, a lot of movies that were actual historical events or sort of, um, you know, like his Vietnam War trilogy, for example. Um, But the Paul Verhoeven managed to wrap extremely subversive, anti corporate, anti government messages into essentially sci fi films. Um, And on the other hand, uh, you have. Filmmakers who seem to be completely intent on being military military propagandists like Michael Bay and Peter Berg. But let's, let's wait to talk about them a little later. I wanted you to speak on Paul Verhoeven and Oliver Stone and why you think they stand apart from this. And uh, some of the films that they've made, which you think are particularly good examples of sort of a unique... You know, fairly high-budget film, um, flying in the face of most of these um, strict paradigms that exist, or or attempts to censor scripts. Well,
1: I was going to say Tom should answer this, but I was just going to begin, um, if you don't mind, thought might be a good way of doing it, which is to say that uh, Paul Verhoeven has not made a film in Hollywood, I think, since two thousand and two. So. Uh, you know, there was only a brief period of time where he was able to be effective in this regard. Um, and secondly, Oliver Stone um, had a very long period of time after making Nixon in 1995, where he was basically unable to make um, a, uh, a sort of controversial dissenting political um, reasonable budget film. Yeah. Uh, he ended up making Snowden in 2016, although Tom remarked about that as well. I, I would also say, you know, uh, uh, again, with Oliver Stone, yeah, he kind of her, hero-worships Kennedy, and, you know, we can point out the uh, sort of historical uh, weaknesses in that kind of uh, narrative retelling, but at the same time, again, I think we do have to come back to this point. They're, you know, they're making movies, so You've got to expect there to be a hero, and you've got to expect there to be a bit of mythologizing. At least he's open about his sources, um, quite apart from the fact that you know the stories he's telling are really compelling. Um, but you know, he, he produced uh, a book for both JFK and Nixon, and did extensive interviews explaining why he thinks this as a historian and how he's got in other historians and expertise. And he was pilloried for it, he's absolutely trash for it. But he was doing, you know, he, he's Making films openly, so I, I would not draw a distinction, particularly between Oliver Stone and verhoeven in terms of quality or anything like that. I think you know they they were both sort of, regardless of their politics, they were, you know, they were writing and uh, producing movies from the heart and honestly and openly. That's all you can expect. Just because Oliver Stone's politics might be ever so slightly one degree or whatever to the left or right or whatever of mine, that's neither here nor there. The principles that he was following were, uh, were, were, were excellent. Sorry, Tom, I took up filling your time. And actually, I think you're better on this uh, on, uh, on Stone, Clancy, and Beethoven. So please go
2: ahead. Um, well, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. Um, Oliver Stone, whatever criticism you might make of him, in particular of the film World Trade Center, you know, the guy tried. The guy made yeah. some pretty hard hitting movies in the 80s and 90s. Like, more so than pretty much anyone else was doing. And in as much as it's possible to do it, he did it. And I think he does deserve to be applauded for that. Now, yeah, sure, like you say, there's a bit of hero worship in JFK. There's quite a lot of hero worship in Snowden. But, you know, at least the guy's making a film about a controversial subject. At least he's not just making Transformers 5. That's a pretty big distinction. Whatever you think of Snowden, either the man Snowden or the film Snowden... You know, it's, it's a better film than Transformers 5. That, that much is certain. <laughs> and it's a, just a, you know, a more valid film. It's a more valuable film for someone to make, you know? Why, not, why shouldn't we be having that conversation rather than talking about the latest Transformers movie? Um, so I think he deserves to be applauded for at least for significant patches of his career having serious integrity and in trying to make films that I have no doubt were difficult to persuade studios to make and that he had to struggle and fight to get some of these made. And it does seem he went through a patch where it just wasn't happening for him anymore. And you could say the same thing to some extent about Verhoeven, that he got a bit lucky in that Robocop was already quite a subversive film, and he came in and gave it a um, (laughs) a kind of even more horrendously violent, bizarrely religious and political (laughs) kind of uh, additions on top of that. And then on the back of the, on the strength of that, essentially Arnold Schwarzenegger saw the movie. And so a few years later, a couple of years later, when Total Recall was running into trouble um, and the studio that was owning it, that owned the script owned the rights to it was kind of uh, in a lot of financial trouble. Schwarzenegger went to his guy at um, Carolco. I think it was the, the studio and said, you've got to buy this script. And he struck a deal with them where he could basically choose his own director for the movie And he chose Paul Verhoeven because he said, you know, he saw Robocop, he thought it was aesthetically and in terms of the humor and in terms of the action and everything, he thought it was amazing. So Schwarzenegger used this to basically leverage Carol Coe into spending an enormous amount of money on that film as well. It was like one of the most expensive films ever made at the time. And it proved outrageously popular, Um, kind of against the odds, given that it's a sort of a corporate thriller that's set on Mars and it's got this whole strange Philip K. Dick was it all a dream element to it as well. I mean Mm -hmm. there's a lot going on in that movie. Um, but you know, the thrust of it is, you know, look at this evil dictator on Mars and who is kind of the corporation and the government in one. He's a just sort of fascist dictator who's even using the air supply as a means of killing people and controlling people. Um, what, what more per- perfect and relevant villain, you could say, for the post-Cold War period? So um, even in a film like that, which a lot of people will think is kind of a ridiculous Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie, there's, I think there's an awful lot in there that's very creative, uh, very imaginative, very original, and also politically subversive and radical. Similar kind of thing happened with Starship Troopers in as much as uh, Verhoeven has said in interviews that basically there was this massive uh, instability at Sony at the time the film was getting made and where all of the executives just sort of kept getting fired every three months. And so no one was actually monitoring what any of the filmmakers were doing. No one was actually looking at the dailies from Starship Troopers and saying, hang on, this (laughs) this isn't what we thought we were getting. (laughs) Um, And that when they turned the film in, the executives didn't know what to make of it, and part of that is because it's like a hundred million dollar art house movie in that you have this this strange. He called it like a dual narrative, where on the face of it, it's this heroic war movie about them fighting giant bugs in space, but underneath that, the subtext is, by the way, they're all fascists. <laughs> so, so,
0: which is great. No that- one- and and there's a, I mean, I particularly remember there's a great scene in it where I think it was, God, it was Doogie Hauser, I forgot the actor's name who plays him, is basically wearing yeah. a Nazi SS uniform by the end of the Pretty movie much. when he climbs yeah. up the ranks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what, the, what, I mean, what they were doing there was making
2: a great war movie that's also one of the best anti-war movies that Hollywood has ever made. And I think he only got away with it because the studio machine, the Hollywood machine was kind of failing at that point in time that, that that studio, no one was really in control. And so a few cracks appeared and he slipped that one through, but then he made, um, hollow man. Was it with the, the the Kevin Bacon invisible man film, which is kind of, I mean, it looks fantastic, but it's kind of an awful movie. And I think at that point he, just couldn't find any more cracks in the studio system and in the Hollywood machine and he went back to Europe and since then he's been making you know lower-budget European features and no one in America is watching them anymore. So I suppose the lesson here is that there are filmmakers out there trying, there are screen makers, screenwriters out there trying very much, um, sometimes succeeding. Not that often, but not so rarely that it's like cause for any kind of real depression or castigation of Hollywood. Um, And that the studio system doesn't uh, want to take very many risks. It's not really in the business of pissing people off. So you do have to push against it, and you do have to push back against that to make a film like JFK or Starship Troopers. But nonetheless, sometimes these films get made, and they're great. I mean, these are great movies. Purely, even just from a kind of like artistic and entertainment point of view, I think those two are absolutely fantastic movies, even if we strip away all of the political stuff. And it does show you that when they, you know, they manage to enforce their will on the studios a bit, it creates a space for incredible creative freedom that can make unusual, profound movies that no one has ever made before. And isn't that what Hollywood should be doing, deep down? They've got all this money, they've got all this technology, they've got all this creative freedom in those senses. Shouldn't they just be making things that, you know, wonderful things that we've not seen yet, even without the politics, like I say? But um, on the whole, the Hollywood machine doesn't really want to do that.
0: Couldn't agree more. And I just remembered that the movie Paul Verhoeven actually made after Total Recall, I think, was Basic Instinct. And on the on the surface, that seems like just a titillating sexual thriller with not much of a subversive element to it. But it, act, I mean, it actually is something you would never see in a, in terms of a big budget movie these days, where the main protagonist was a coke addicted cop who accidentally shot someone while on cocaine, and falls in love with a, a basically a serial killer a nymphomaniac who kills people with an ice pick. I mean, it's a pretty It's a pretty brutal, and and, subversive film. And not
2: just that, but a a psychopathic serial killer who writes a novel in order to create an alibi for herself. Now, there's two different ways of of viewing basic instinct since you brought it up. One is that on the surface, it's just a well-made, titillating sex thriller. And underneath you have all of this weird, corrupt, postmodern intellectual content. The other reading is that, on the surface, it's a bunch of trendy, <laughs> new left <laughs> nonsense, and underneath it's just a titty flick. So it does sustain both of those interpretations, and I think Paul Verhoeven would probably agree <laughs> with both of those interpretations. So um, make of basic instinct what you will, really, but um, I'm firmly in the camp that Robocop and Total Recall and Starship Troopers are among the best films made in my lifetime.
0: I can't help but agree. I mean, especially RoboCop. As much as I love Total Recall, I think RoboCop wraps it up onto such a great package. I mean, the 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 ant the, just the idea of privatizing the police force, building killer robots. I mean, it's it's got everything, and even the the sort of the yuppie rivalry in the off in the workplace leading to actual murder, which is great too. Um, you know, kind of corporate white collar people killing each other (laughs) so what's incredible to me is I've read a lot of you know Oliver Stone's thought process about you know sort of his being attacked by critics you know especially from a from a political angle you you go through some of that in your book and he he describes being constantly beat up you know um, especially after making JFK but it seems like he made a conscious effort To do a very different style, you know, maybe aesthetically similar, but a different type of film with Nixon, where he actually portrayed, he actually humanized Nixon um, in a way that was pretty extraordinary, considering you know the movie that had preceded it. So it seems like he was almost trying to sort of quell his his, the, the noise of his critics. And, and there's actually an interesting debate that was on, aired live on C-SPAN between him and several of his critics um, around the time of Nixon coming out. And they actually sort of, they they say, well, we hated JFK. We thought it was sort of conspiracy garbage. You know, we, we feel that you've been sort of redeemed with Nixon. So I'm surprised that even that um, was not enough to sort of put him in the good graces of Hollywood again. And it seemed like, you know, I don't want to, Throw any shade at Oliver Stone necessarily in his film choices, but it did seem like I don't want to call it groveling, but it seemed like he was trying to really fit back into the Hollywood system when he made movies like World Trade Center or um, or some of the other choices he made. I think W was was not very well distributed and it was controversial, but even that one was um, he was bending over backwards to portray George W. Bush in a very positive. Sympathetic way. Um,
1: well, I think I can comment on that. I, I'd say, I think I disagree, actually, because I think in the case of Nixon, um, yes, he was more sympathetic to Nixon than many anticipated, but that's because he wanted to use Nixon's character to throw into relief the horror of the of the whole American system, political system, um, which he calls, uh, or the Nixon character, uh, played by uh, Anthony Hopkins, calls the beast. Yes. So I think that Nixon was actually a really still. I still think he was really hard on it with the um, with a creative exploration of, sub- of subversion. I'd say in the case of W, um, which was uh, yeah, thirteen years um, uh, after his sort of last subversive one. I would I would agree with you in terms of the. You know, I didn't think it was a terribly sort of powerful film. I mean, it was it really sort of just trots through George George W. Bush's life. Whether that was to do with, I I, I find it unlikely, having read about the film a fair bit, find it unlikely that Oliver Stone was trying to be too submissive or grovelling there. I think that was probably more to do with the fact that he had to film that within about, I think, 39 or 40 days. So it was a real rush job. And it was right at the end of the uh, Bush administration as well. And they wanted to get it out prior to Bush leaving office. So it all had this kind of, I just felt that creatively that didn't really come together. I'm not sure that it was to do with Oliver Stone's um, a sort of uh, any kind of dilution of, of Oliver Stone's politics. But I do agree with you more broadly that Oliver Stone's politics had been quashed from his mid 40s until his mid 60s in terms of the, the way that he could uh, the, I mean, he's admitted it himself. You know, the energy that he had—he talked about um, that he had the youthful energy he had in the mid '90s. You know, he said he just didn't have it, um, and that was fairly shortly afterwards. You know, he was talking about making all these different films. You know, he had he had an idea about the CIA for one—that was a, 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 a production and um, He was going to direct the Peacemaker and um, with Clooney and some other things like this. But you know, none of those projects ever came to fruition. And I think that was—I think that was probably a lot of it just burnout. Um, and maybe some of that would have happened anyway, regardless of the political pressure. You know, people do get burnt out in their 40s or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's probably a little bit harsh, though, to, to have a go at him about W and definitely too harsh to have a go at him about Nixon, which I think was continued along his line of, uh, of, of uh, very imaginative um, and playful uh, direction with uh, political material
0: wanted to see a sympathetic portrayal of Nixon might've been able to see it that way while not sort of detecting that, that layer underneath because in a lot of ways I feel like JFK and the movie Nixon, Nixon is almost sort of a spiritual sequel if we're talking about the backdrop of each movie sort of being the beast or the, the, this, this hidden system or, or whatnot. Um, but Tom, do you have anything yes. to say on, uh, on Oliver Stone?
2: Well, uh, only that, I mean, I think Nixon is his best film. It's the one I like the most, for sure. And
1: um, You like the deleted scene, though, <laughs> with uh, <laughs> the eyes going funny on... Um, oh, yeah, that's what, it's, it's,
0: it's, CIA director. Yeah, that's a very odd scene. <laughs> yeah. um, but, yeah. I mean, I, I think he he almost kind of deconstructed
2: the biopic in what he did with Nixon, because like you say, everyone was expecting this to be some kind of, uh, very critical film, like almost, uh, an anti Nixon piece of propaganda, almost, I think was what people were kind of anticipating. And what he actually did was portray some of the worst of Nixon. Um, there is some scenes where he, you know, he is batshit. He is just going crazy. He's lost it. Um, and it does seem that for a while Nixon did just lose it, um, at the same time, he's saying, but come on, it's not just about this one guy. And that this is part of the problem with biopics, particularly political biopics, is they make it all about one person um, rather than, like you say, the beast or the, the hidden system, the secret government, or or even just in general, the struggles and problems of the human condition and the world we live in. Yeah. Hollywood loves getting hung up on you know a simple story of one man this summer, blah, blah, blah. Um, that I think what he actually did in that was very brave creatively and politically. Uh, I'm not surprised he got flack for that because it seems that most of the time when anyone does that and actually does it successfully and, you know, they get a good distribution and some promotion and people are paying attention to this, they usually end up with quite a lot of flack for it. So this is one of the problems you either make, um, Movies like Oliver Stone did, in which case you get a whole heap of shit thrown at you, or you make a film like Kill the Messenger, which gets sort of completely let down by its own studio who doesn't put any money into promotion or wide distribution. You don't make any money with it and everyone, you know, no one pays much attention anyway. And aside from film buffs like us, I don't think anyone's seen it. <laughs> so, no, and it really... Yeah, do- it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, brilliant film, I would say. It fits into this same kind of tradition we're talking about in Hollywood, where sometimes the cracks appear and something like that slips through, and it's wonderful. It's great.
0: Yeah, and with that film, I mean, you had some star power in it, and I never saw Jeremy Renner or, um, God, what's you guys other guy's name? Andrew is it Andrew Garcia? I never saw them on talk shows promoting it. I mean, there's a lot of you know, things you just don't even think about when it comes to why certain films like that just sort of disappear. Um, and it's, it's, it's like this, you know, a studio might fund it, they just won't promote it, which is a huge important part of getting a film well, out I, there.
2: Actually, I think in that case, Jeremy Renner put up about half of the money for the film. You're just kidding. Because they were having so much trouble getting it financed because obviously, you know, Gary Webb's story, who's going to finance
0: that? Well, that's um, huge respect points for him then. I, I had no idea. That was the case, Um,
2: and given the returns, I'm guessing he lost money on it. But who cares? Because he made a great film. um, I would say, hopefully, he sees it that way, and hopefully, he does it again.
0: Yeah, I mean, easily one of the best films about you know the U.S. government, and for as long as I can remember, it's been a while since I've seen a film like that. But let's let's um let's shift to. Uh, terrible examples of filmmakers that, even though they may think they have artistic integrity, literally seem like salesmen for the military and the Pentagon. And it seems like, just going through your book, it seems like Michael Bay, it's probably the most obvious example of that, but I had no idea Peter, is his name Peter Berg? Is that yeah. his name? Yeah. I had no idea that he made the Boston Marathon movie, Lone Survivor, he made Battleship, which is a almost like an inversion of a Paul Verhoeven sci-fi movie. It's one of the most pro-military films I've ever seen, um, besides the Transformer movies in a sci-fi context. So talk about them. I mean, would you agree that P- Peter Berg is almost trying out to be the most propagandistic, shameless, military-promoting filmmaker in Hollywood right now, besides Michael Bay?
1: Yeah, I, again, I, I'd be um, uh, a bit more sympathetic to Peter Berg. Um, maybe this is my sort of <laughs> innate conservatism kicking in a little bit. <laughs> um, but if you look at The Kingdom, it looks like, which was the movie made in 2007, and it was about the US relationship with Saudi Arabia. I think that he went into that film trying to make an honest film about Saudi Arabia um, and trying to understand, you know, he, he went to visit Saudi Arabia to do some research on that. He wanted to have a sense of international relations. And, you know, he, he, and I don't think he wanted to make a, a racist picture um, because he was, he, he, if you read the interviews that he gives at the time, he, he does seem to be, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can't take him at his word, but he seemed to be doing his best but just incrementally through the process of making the film and cutting corners and making compromises, um, and probably in part perhaps because the advisers that they got on set, um, although not uh, although not military, came from Henry Kissinger's um, advisory firm. <laughs> so just slowly that script just edged away from anything that could have been more... Um, uh, politically um, interesting or subversive and it ended up really being quite a... You know, Jack Shaheen, um, who died um, uh, yesterday I think, was a, a guy who wrote this terrific book, one of the best books about Hollywood you can ever see, called Real Bad Arabs um, and he put the kingdom up as being the worst the most racist of all the films, at least post 9-11 um, productions uh, so but if you, I mean, I haven't got the quotes in front of me. But if you look at what Peter Berg was saying at the time, you know, he he was, I think he was trying to educate himself genuinely. But he got a few weeks or a few months into that process and just couldn't handle it anymore. In the end, it was just like, right, you know, let's make, you know, let, let, let's make the uh, the baddie have a hook hand and be a Muslim and you know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> give him, a, yeah, give him an eye patch now and. <laughs> I can't remember the exact details of the film, but do you know what I mean? It, it became that. It became a monster. Um, and Peter Berg sort of, you know, survived very well w- within that sort of monstrous system.
2: Tom? Um, well, I think I, I think I would agree that Peter Berg has sometimes tried to make more intelligent films. Um and that does distinguish him from Michael Bay because Michael Bay has never tried to make an intelligent film in his life, so yeah I mean Bay is the worst in almost every category you care to mention really um, and he goes back to the military time and time and time again and seems very content to work with him and they seem very content um, in in their relationship because one of the things we found, actually, is that the way this process is supposed to work, just to very quickly, is that you approach the pentagon, they review your script, they send back the script notes, you incorporate them, they look at the new script, they say okay, fine, and then you sign a contract saying we're using this version of the script, and this is the support that the pentagon is going to provide, and this is what it's going to cost, and blah blah blah. That's the way it's supposed to work. In the case of Transformers 2 and 3, they actually signed the agreements before the script was even finished. Oh my gosh! The pentagon- The Pentagon was so involved in the pre-production on that, so involved in the script-writing phase on that, that they just said, it'll be fine. You know, they're doing everything we want. It's going to do, let's just sign the contract and get on with it. Um, And on the very latest uh, liaison office reports that have been released, on Transformers 5, they actually, it seems, started filming before they'd even signed the contract. That there was actually filming going on at military installations before they'd even, you know, got the legal stuff wrangled out that's how kind of keen they are to work with Michael Bay, and in particular with the Transformers franchise. For some reason, the military absolutely love that stuff. Um, I mean, it's it fascinating. It does portray them very well, of course, but I just mean it's it's big, dumb alien robot movie. It's like, this is what the Pentagon's really into now? They're, I suppose they, they can't really make Iraq war movies because what would you make? I mean, the thing's been such a kind of horror show that it's quite difficult to make a, um, a movie about that.
0: contact. When the producers approached the Pentagon to rent some vehicles and helicopters, the script was quite different. The military had a bigger role in the film, but they were not portrayed very well. As the Pentagon's own database on film records, quote, Originally a fair amount of silly military depiction negotiated civilianization of almost all military parts. Minimal military depiction, but positive parenthesis benign allowed use of vehicles and helicopters for National Guard sequence. This civilianization also had the effect of removing some of the most politically relevant subversive material in the script. One scene that was altered, likely at the request of the DOD, is when Ellie begins to decode a series of images hidden within the alien signal. In a meeting at the White House, Ellie explains that the decoded images are blueprints for building a machine and speculates that it could be advanced alien communications technology or some kind of transport device. In the original script, the national security advisor suggests, quote, It could just as easily be some kind of Trojan horse. We build it and outpours the entire vegan army. Unquote. The chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff responds, quote, Why even bother to risk personnel? Why not send some kind of doomsday machine? Every time an emerging technological civilization announces itself by broadcasting radio waves into space, they reply with a message. The civilization builds it and blows itself up. No expedientary force is needed. Ellie responds by telling the president, quote, This is communist paranoia right out of War of the Worlds. In the finished film, this scene appears in modified form. And it is the national security advisor and not the military who says, quote, Every time they detect a new civilization, they fax construction plans from space. We poor saps build this thing and blow ourselves to kingdom come. End quote. Ellie's response about Cold War paranoia was cut, removing one of the few lines in the movie that was critical of the military and their mindset. While in the original script, it is the military in this scene who appears neurotic. This fearfulness was civilianized in the final version, and the criticism of this mentality was removed. Similarly, another scene was excised where the candidates to go through the wormhole are shown a weapon that they will take along for self-defense. This deletion included Ellie's objections that, quote, I question the thinking behind sending the first ambassador to another civilization in armed, basically announcing our intentions are hostile, end quote. And then insisting on taking a weapon is, quote, xenophobic paranoia, end quote. Another sequence in the September 1995 draft that features the military was also taken out of the final cut. In the original version, the president gives a stirring speech at the UN about the building of this great new technology, and this is intercut with a military convoy and Apache helicopters approaching the construction site. The script describes how, quote, encircling the installation is a vast graveyard of discarded aircraft, the detritus of 20th century war-making." This is rather obvious symbolism representing how technological efforts are moving from the violence of the 20th century military industry to peaceful 21st century space exploration. In the final version, this sequence does not appear, and there is no indication of military involvement in the construction of the wormhole machine. The, the concept of civilianizing military personnel, does that refer to emphasizing the human qualities, the sort of that this, this military guy is just a regular guy like the rest of us who has family and kids and, you know, or is it, or is it actually in specific instances trying to say, we don't want this character to be an active military, we want him to be a civilian.
1: The scientists who were doing the crazy radiation experiments um, that created the Hulk, they, they, Wanted them to get rid of the, their military uniforms, which were in the original script. Um, I mean, that's quite a clear case of, of civilianization for, for for that reason, for the political reason, um, which you know we've got in
0: print. So, in the case of so in the case of Transformers, uh, it seems like the military in that movie is portrayed very much like their you know, a ragtag group of normal guys and they, you know, the banter and the, just the way they por- they're they portrayed and they're portrayed as not part of this larger, more cold military system um, in that movie. But I don't know if that's, you know, I might be misinterpreting that concept of civilianizing. It, and in the case you just mentioned, Matthew, that's a literal, uh, they literally wanted to change a military personnel in, a, in the Hulk script to be a private contractor. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, there's a whole bunch of other examples of that. Uh, Contact, Jurassic Park 3, um, all of those are in the book. I think with Transformers, that's probably more a reflection of how Michael Bay sees the military than how the military has told him to write the script. Though, at the same time, I'm sure they deal with him. In fact, you can see it on some of the making-of documentaries and features and things for these movies. They have a very kind of folksy approach to one another. They're very familiar and friendly and so Michael Bay probably does think that the military, you know, they're just, just a bunch of swell guys, you know. That's how you should portray them on cinema because that's how the ones that I've met have always been towards me <laughs> without realising that's because they want you to portray them really well in their film. Um, yeah,
1: I think that's really important as well. I think for those of us who have like, spent many years of our lives reading books about power, for example, and propaganda um, and the political system, it's you know it, it's kind of obvious to us that there is a problem at least with powerful organizations that where um particularly uh, in the United States, which is the most powerful country on earth that these uh some of these mentalities have kind of become malignant, and these organizations like the National Security Agency have become a threat to us rather than something that is. Uh, you know that is fulfilling its uh, f- fulfilling their remit. You know that's obvious to us because we've read about it for years and we follow the news carefully. And you know it's part of, for 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 several of us. It's you know we earn money because of that. In my case, I teach about that kind of thing. But actually, if you're a filmmaker who's you know your life has been involved with you know working out how to make robots look good on screen, you know to have that kind of political education or re-education you know what why would you go through that it's really it takes years to have a um to to develop the idea that you are uh, that the world needs some kind of reform that power systems are dangerous i think i was about 24 before i even really sort of had it all in my mind you know what i mean like it was sort of like coherent like a lot sort of a reasonably coherent political philosophy you know it's not surprising that Someone who spent their lives you know, on, on animation, is not necessarily going to have that particularly in mind. And when the when they do meet the military people, they're really friendly, so they're going to present it in that way. So I don't know. Again, I'm being a little bit more sympathetic than I usually would be to the to the likes of Bay and Berg, but I can kind of see where they come from with that. Look at someone. Peter Berg did an interview. He looked um, uh, looked like he'd had a, a hard day. He did an interview where he talked about the. Uh, the necessity for um, bombing Iran. And he just looked so wild-eyed about it, but he didn't know anything about it. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? You like, could tell, he, look it up on YouTube, it's from 2008, I think. Um, and, and you can tell because the interviewer is trying to sort of quiz him out a bit about it. And it's clear that he doesn't have any arguments. And that he just worried about it. And he just freaked out. And then he, And he wanted to say it. And he looked a bit tired and emotional. You know what I mean, <laughs> and, so, and so, but but of course, you know, if you look at the world without having a, a um, you know a, re- a reasonable sense of the kind of uh, controversies that surround, yeah, you know, uh, Iran or Israel Palestine, whatever it is, then it's very easy to say, oh my God, we must do something about that. Let's smash that. And I think I got the impression that that's what Peter Berg was a little bit like, someone who tried to educate himself wasn't really encouraged by the workplace he was in to do so and then along comes Henry Kissinger's mates and says well you know this is kind of the way the world works and and, and, the, and then and then he's sunk do you know what I mean you you'd probably get if you speak to Peter Berg for about four hours at the end of a long drinking session you'd probably get him to break down and you'd uh, you'd get him to start waving the flag of peace again but then he'd wake up again the next morning and go off and make some other trash <laughs> it's just people who haven't got, you know, who haven't got the critical uh, self defence, um, intellectual self defence, Chomsky calls it, and I think it's a really good thing that, uh, which I, I think a lot of us do get, but in some places of work, like Hollywood, you don't. That's not really much good, really. That doesn't do you any good to be like that.
0: <laughs> I wanted you guys to talk about this mysterious uh, figure, Chase Brandon. He has a lot of involvement in a lot of other films, but there's an interesting part in your book where you speculate that the character in Wag the Dog played by Robert De Niro may actually be based on Chase Brandon, who you describe as CIA's Hollywood liaison in real life. So can you explain who that guy is for people who've never heard of him before? And, and you know not as much the wag the dog part that's more of a side side note but who is he and and sort of what is his role why does his name keep popping up in your book
2: well he was the cia's first
0: permanent official
2: entertainment liaison officer um in the late 1996 i think it was they actually founded this office and they gave the job to him uh he had been with the cia at that point for 25, 30 years or something. I mean, a long time. He was a very, very experienced uh, covert operations man. He'd been in Latin America. He'd been in other places. He'd conducted training at CIA facilities. He, you know, briefed other organizations. I guess they looked at him and they thought, excuse me, and they thought he's a guy who is very experienced, very loyal to the agency, familiar with liaising with other organizations. And to top it all off, um, He's related to Tommy Lee Jones,
1: is it?
2: Um, Yeah,
1: first cousins or something.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, (laughs) he already had some kind of connection with a, you know, big Hollywood star. Um, And I think they just thought, well, he's the best guy we've got. And for the following 10 years or so, he worked on, I think it was 11 major movies, maybe about the same number of TV series of various kinds. We're talking both entertainment and factual, uh, helped people write books, worked on screenplays that as yet haven't even been produced, all kinds of things. He was very, very active. And there is basically no documentation on what on earth Chase Brandon actually spent his time doing. But interviews with people who worked with him and interviews, one interview actually with him, with Chase Brandon himself, which was conducted by uh, an academic who put this information in his thesis. thesis... And he asked Chase Brandon about this subject of script changes, of, you know, input on these films. And one of the examples that Brandon revealed was that in Meet the Parents, in the scene where Ben Stiller discovers that his future father-in-law, Robert De Niro, is, uh, has this kind of secret spy bunker hidden underneath his house. Um, in the original script, he finds on the desk uh, a bunch of CIA torture manuals. <laughs> it In the altered script, Chase Brandon said, oh, well, could you make that more like, you know, pictures of him with dignitaries or, you know, other pictures of him that make it clear that he's an agent rather than, you know, torture manuals. And so they changed that. And the fact that the CIA have torture manuals going back to like the 50s and 60s, i.e. the early years of the CIA's existence, (laughs) kind of proves that they've got a, you know, a bit of a dog in that fight when it comes to torture that kind of proves that the CIA have been torturing people for quite a long time. And therefore, obviously, this is something that they didn't want in a friendly rom-com starring Ben Stiller and Robert De Niro. They didn't want an ex-CIA agent portrayed in that way. So this is something that they changed. Now, we don't know what Chase Brandon did on most of the episodes of the TV shows and most of the films he worked on, but the little we do know shows that he was very effective at discussing things with screenwriters, at suggesting things that would work from a televisual or cinematic entertainment point of view, but also would portray the CIA or the world around the CIA in the light that they found desirable. And actually, if you watch all of these movies, and I have watched all of them, the ones he worked on, um, generally they're of the type where the world, as we say, is dark and complex and dangerous, and therefore the CIA are a necessary evil, perhaps. The only one that actually kind of portrays the CIA in an unremittingly positive light would be Mission Impossible, both Mission Impossible 1 and Mission Impossible 3. And there, we have to assume that the IMF team is just a metaphor for the CIA. The agency themselves, are, it's not made clear that they're actually employing the IMF. It's only if we assume them as a a kind of analogy for the CIA that it is even about the agency at all. So, like I say, the CIA has a different kind of approach to Hollywood, necessarily, partly because of who they are and how Hollywood has treated them in the past. Um, But also, I think Chase Brandon was quite astute at working at, I suppose, shaping films in such a way that no matter how bad the CIA looks there's always something or someone looks worse. And therefore, like I say, the CIA appears necessary. That's a recurring theme in a lot of the films he worked on, at least. So that's who Chase Brandon is.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really, really fascinating. Um, I had never heard of him until I read your book. I'm sure it probably came up in a previous article of yours. I just didn't remember his name. or And, and it's the first time I had you know, heard that the character in wag the dog might actually be based on a real person. Um, is that, is that a theory that you guys sort of f- were working with or did you read that somewhere else that he may be based on? No, no, no.
2: That's something I, we cooked up. Yeah. Well,
0: well, that, it's very compelling I was, uh, theory. I must say. <laughs> yeah.
1: That was to do with the, um, uh, the look of the character and also the initials of the character, um, Uh, Conrad Breen, wasn't it, and uh, Chase Brandon. He sort of dresses a bit like
2: him, and he kind of does the same job. That's the most kind of fundamental thing, is that this character of Conrad Breen, no one really knows who he works for, but yet he's some kind of PR and propaganda guy who secretly works for the government. He also seems able to recognise the CIA on site in the film, and he's the guy who's negotiating with the CIA all of which kind of suggests that he's CIA, but it's never said that. So you could put all that together and suggest, well, they were making this film just at the time that Brandon arrives in Hollywood, and you could look at Robert De Niro and say he went on to make three films with Chase Brandon. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you know, it's a theory. We, we don't certainly don't have any documentation on it.
0: No, oh, it's a it's a fascinating theory. I mean, especially because the movie Wag the Dog makes, you know, if this is the CIA CIA or whatever government agency he's working for, it makes him look evil and and bad. Um it, it, there's nothing in the movie. I mean, they they assa- you know, spoiler alert, um the one of the main characters in the film is sort of a Hollywood producer uh who gets hired And instructed what to do by the Robert De Niro character. And at the end, he gets assassinated because he wants to take the credit. He wants to publicly be able to take the credit for devising all these fake, you know, Albanian war scenes and and all that stuff. But you mentioned that there's always an effort for the CIA, no matter how bad they're portrayed, sometimes maybe even intentionally so, that there's always something in the film to make something look worse than the CIA, and at the end of Wag the Dog, I don't even remember this, but you, you guys describe this in the book, is that, and I'm not sure which character said this, but they say that the war of the future is nuclear terrorism, um, which is essentially, that's the that's almost the underpinning for most of the neoconservative ideology that led to the Iraq war and, and all that stuff later on. So I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? I, I'm kind of just going off here. <laughs>
1: Well, it was a very prescient film I mean, 1997. Um, I mean, this was before Osama bin Laden was uh, a household name, a year before the Kenya and Tanzania bombings in 1998. Um, so, and Ragdoll was received, um, I think, in certainly in Britain and I think in the United States as well, as being a very intelligent um, sort of forward-thinking satire. Um, and indeed it was. You know, it, it, uh, it was not just the terrorism issue that it, I think it... Um, that it foregrounded, but also the, uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal with president Clinton. And, you know, it, it came at the right time, um, but it was, you know, ahead of its time as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. A really, really fascinating, um, uh, and, uh, powerful film, I would say. Um, the other interesting case there, um, along the same, in the same bracket was the recruit, um, which was the Al Pacino movie. Um, and, Tricia Jenkins, one of our colleagues, um, acquired documentation um, showing the uh, extreme level of uh, CIA involvement. And, you know, she got, I think, several dozen pages of uh, of memos, detailed memos, um, showing that the scenes there were rewritten. And one of the scenes was, um, you know, literally a list. Of, you know, the CIA director listing all of the threats to America in the, in the post-Cold War world, including Iran and international terrorism, uh, and even Peru, weirdly enough. <laughs> uh, so it was like, this, this was a, um, a movie which um, very much seemed like, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a deliberate political um, uh, attempt to manipulate from behind the scenes by the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, and that was one of the ones that, you know, that quite a lot of documentation has come out on. Um, but again, the documentation has only really come out in the past two or three years. Again, it's incomplete. Again, it's only one film of several dozen that have been impacted by even just the Central Intelligence Agency, let alone um, these other thousand plus um, of Department of Defense products over the last hundred years. I mean, we really are working in a field that, has got uh, has really been dominated by one person, uh, one academic called uh, Larry Seward, and you know very few other people have been publishing anything in the field until at the very least the turn of this century, you know, 15 or 16 years ago. Um, but really, even then it's been so uh, sparse, um, and many of the conclusions reached have been um, really quite uh, tepid. That that's one of the main reasons that Tom and I thought we should interject. And of course, then there's all these other movies that are coming out now, which keeps the issue current all the time. Um, you no, know, Tom and I saw uh, Wonder Woman the other day. No, was it just me who saw Wonder Woman, um, which we think may have um, military support? But we're uh, Tom's waiting on the uh, on the documents for that. Um, and then there's uh, uh, the Kong film, Skull Island, which uh, I watched today. Tom watched yesterday. You know, we thought would be um, uh, have military involvement, but it looks like this is one of the occasions where the script was perhaps saved a little bit and was perhaps made a better film because they they got a lot of the military hardware from uh, the government of Vietnam, and so the compromises that they'll have made would have been a lot less. So, uh, I, sorry, I'm I'm slightly going off on, on <laughs> going off on a tangent now myself, but um, I'm just saying, you know, that there's. It feels to us that this was a very necessary book to to write. Um, to be honest with you, I didn't really want to write another book, but it, it kind of, on this subject. But it seemed like uh, w- with the documentation that was coming through to uh, to us, it seemed like we really had to had to do it. And uh, uh, and I think it is important to to keep an eye on these on these upcoming uh, upcoming productions and uh, and also some of these other upcoming internal reports, such as the. Um, the uh, Office of Inspector General uh, report by the CIA.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I I encourage anyone listening to this, anyone who's read uh, the book you guys have put out, to um, dig for themselves. And you know, if you, there's a movie out there that you're curious about, I mean, there are methods to get access to these documents and to find out this information and the 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 work the work is out there to be done there's there's plenty plenty of work to be done still um, and I would I would imagine you guys could probably write more books about the same subject <laughs> so Tom do you have anything to say to close us out here
2: well just to try and emphasize and encourage people to actually if you haven't already read the book please do go and get a copy because we we worked very hard on this. Um, an awful lot of work, both on the research front and on the writing front, has gone into this. And I think, I mean, we're both, Matt and I, are very, very proud of what we've been able to put together here. In terms of like, it's a very readable, accessible book about a very important topic that it seems no one had ever written this book before. And I guess if we hadn't, I'm doubting anyone would have. So uh, that's why we wrote it. That's why you should go and check it out and get a copy. Um, and just that bear this in mind, not in a like hostile or paranoid way, but just bear it bear this in mind when you're watching a film, that there are these forces that, both on the studio side and on the government side, that are systematically making films generally less subversive and imaginative than they would otherwise be and maybe to try and support those smaller films, those smaller, more radical films a bit more, and, you know, talk more about those and share those around and recommend those to people, because then maybe we'll get a few more of them.
1: I completely agree with that. Do you mind if I just make one comment? No, please. Um, I, always th- I, always, I think this is the last thing I wanted to say, but I put out a message earlier on social media asking for uh, people's responses to, uh, to movies, which anti-war films they liked and all this kind of thing, um, and the response was, was huge. You know, there's been um, scores and scores of comments. And I think it is important as well that what to, to, to say, Tom and I are, I think, shining a light or opening a window on this, what we see as a scandal of hidden government activity uh, in Hollywood, having some significant discernible impact on many more productions than than people realise, but I think people do uh, the range of expertise from people on cinema goes way beyond what Tom and I, or, or even a small group of people, can, can do. Like cinema is really something that people can get a lot out of, and there are very positive messages um, in uh, in films and the way that people interpret films. Uh, people have listed all sorts of movies here. Including some that I haven't seen: Full Metal Jacket, Paths of Glory, Good Morning Vietnam, Platoon, All Quiet on the Western Front, Burn, Charge of the Light Brigade, Jacob's Ladder, um, Wonderful Times, uh, Jacques, um, you yeah, District Nine. That's was, that was a good one. And there are, um, I think, people's experience of, of cinema and of entertainment generally is so rich. We I mean, think, I mean, there's coming up a thousand films released each year. Uh, you know, there's maybe up to a hundred thousand. Major movies that have been made over the past century or so, and me and Tom don't know all of them, let alone how that how each of those have been changed by the government. Um, and Hollywood is a really rich uh, area of, of stories, you know, all sorts of stories from left and right, and you know, surreal and everything. Um, so we are sort of saying, you know, it is a wonderful world. <laughs> you know, we're not trying to sort of poo-poo it. Um, it, it is a, um, a beautiful tapestry of culture that is is created. But it is also important, particularly when you notice the sort of the trashier end or when you think, you know, when you sort of smell, you know, is there a bit of bullshit here? Yeah, I mean, often there is. And then on those occasions, it is worth checking out. And if there are some reforms that could be made in Hollywood to make that more transparent, we would, note, we would notice uh, a small but appreciable uh, improvement and the quality
0: of, um, of our popular culture. Excellent, guys. Yes, I uh, recommend everybody buy a copy of National Security Cinema. I don't know if I should recommend Amazon, though. Is there, is there a better place that you would prefer people buy your, your book from?
2: Sadly, it's only available on Amazon, so... Sorry guys, but it's Amazon or nothing. So please do buy it.
0: And for an extremely reasonable price, although the I think I got mine for some, maybe a promotional price. I'm not sure if it's still that low, but it is extremely pleasurable to read. Um, very well organized. Uh, a ton of work went into this book. Um, you can, it, I mean, it almost seems like a passion project, in a way. I mean, it, compared to some of the other books that I've read. With this amount of research um, That you guys have done So I, I really appreciate this And I will be recommending it to everyone Who's, interest, who's remotely interested in, in the ways in which Propaganda seeps into our, our Culture So thank you very much guys
1: Thanks for being so complimentary Robbie.
0: Yeah and thanks for having us on To talk about all this The Terminator franchise was there ever a film series that ever fell off a creative cliff quite as high as The Terminator? From indie success to mega blockbuster success, and onto mediocrity, then, finally, formulaic drivel. Unclear until now is the role played by the Pentagon in trashing this once celebrated franchise. The Terminator franchise was originally described as, quote, anti-nuclear and anti-authoritarian. This was indeed the tone of the first two films, but by the third, and especially the fourth in the series, it had been completely co-opted by the Department of Defense, with the result that it became a direct champion of the US military. By the fourth movie, Terminator Salvation, 2009, the franchise had made a clear shift towards supporting establishment narratives, despite its earlier reservations. The DOD provided assistance, and the film was shot in Kirtland Air Force Base. A central theme is whether John Connor should prioritize striking a decisive military blow against the machines, or rescue some captured humans who are entombed with shades of Auschwitz by the Terminators. The classic humanitarian war scenario. For a world that is set just 15 years after a global nuclear holocaust, the survivors are fancifully healthy not to mention Harry. Indeed, people hang around the streets of Los Angeles, a U.S. submarine patrols underwater, and the Air Force still functions above the ground. Radiation poisoning seems to be of little concern, even though two further nuclear explosions occurred during the course of the film. The military actually conduct a heart transplant in the midst of war in broad daylight above ground. None of this is an issue for director Joseph McGee, as he normalizes the unthinkable. Instead, he concludes the films with words that were surely inspired by, or directly written by, the very forces that destroyed the planet in the first two films. Skynet's global network remains strong, but we will not quit until all of it is destroyed. During periods of heightened popular concern about nuclear weapons, films like Dr. Strangelove and The British Made Threads engaged thoroughly with the serious consequences of conflict. Even the flash-forwards from the first three Terminator films hinted at a horrible future scape of pain, deprivation, and ad hoc guerrilla warfare. In contrast, producer Jeffrey Silver explained that the Department of Defense gave, quote, fantastic cooperation to Salvation because they recognized it in the future, portrayed in this film, the military will still be the men and women who protect us, no matter what may come, end quote. Salvation's sanitized depiction of nuclear war again indicates how filmmakers may omit politically disturbing material, even stretching narrative credibility beyond breaking point for the benefit of their institutional backers.